Around Christmas time, Christine and Katie and I stumbled upon this interesting little book called The Cabinet of Calm, Soothing Words for Troubled Times by Paul Anthony Jones, a collection of 51 obsolete words which have disappeared from the English vocabulary but might be interesting if we raise them from the dead. This sounded to us like a sermon series. So we've turned it into the cabinet of colloquial curiosities, rare words for troubled times, including the first fascinating word, Zenobia, more in a moment. Our scripture lesson is from the first chapter of John's Gospel. This happens fairly early in Jesus' life. The next day, Jesus went to Galilee, and Jesus found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to Nathanael, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming down the road, he said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you talked to Philip. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Nathaniel is but a bit player in the snappy narrative of Jesus' inimitable life. You probably don't know who he is or what he does. John is the only gospel writer who tells us about him, and there only in the first and the last chapters. He doesn't appear in the synoptics. And yet I just adore this efficient little story of Nathaniel because it seems to me to be kind of a terse précis of the entire gospel message. Because if we understand how Jesus redeems Nathaniel, we get some insight into how Jesus redeems the entire world. For God so loved the world, right? So I want to use three words to describe Nathaniel this morning. Nathaniel is blunt, smart, and fragile. The first two come straight off the pages of the Bible, and the third is my inference based on my own particular reading of the story. So first, Nathaniel is blunt. When Philip, Philip is actually one of Jesus' early disciples, he's actually the third disciple to enlist in Jesus' little band of merry men, when Philip finds Nathanael, Philip says, We have found the Messiah. Nathanael naturally asks, Who is it? And Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Nathanael famously sneers, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael is blunt and he is superior. More on that in a moment. Can anything good come out of Nazareth indeed? So first, Nathanael is blunt, and secondly, Nathanael is smart. When Jesus sees Nathanael striding toward him with purpose down that Palestinian road, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael naturally, he's never met Jesus, Nathanael naturally asks, Lord, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. In the cramped and tiny homes of ancient Palestine, you see, the fig tree in your courtyard was your study. 
It's where you poured over your books and memorized Torah. So saying, I saw you sitting on the, under the fig tree is like saying, I saw you at the library. I saw you at the jet propulsion laboratory when the rover touched down. I saw you at the Fermi particle accelerator. I saw you in the chemistry lab. I saw you at the brain surgeon conference. So that's what we learn of Nathaniel from the pages of the Bible. He's blunt and he's smart. But he also might be just a little fragile as well. Like a lot of many blunt, smart people, he might be just a little insecure on the inside. Might have a superiority-inferiority complex. On the outside, he's all bluster and bravado. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, can anything good come out of a tiny rustic village of farmers and shopkeeps? Population 400. But see, that's just the thing. Nathaniel himself comes from Cana of Galilee, another tiny rustic village four miles up the donkey path from Nazareth. In other words, Nathaniel cannot believe that anything worthwhile could come from a place like his own hometown, including, obviously, Nathaniel himself. Many blunt, smart people are all bluster and bravado on the outside, all superior on the outside, insecure, fragile, and inferior on the inside. The philosopher Alain de Botton says, there is terror behind the haughtiness. It takes a punishing impression of our own inferiority to make other people feel that they're not good enough for us. Now, not all smart people act this way. Smart people with healthy self-esteem don't act this way. Did I ever tell you that I studied down the road from Albert Einstein in Princeton? Well, not really. Dr. Einstein had been dead for 30 years by the time I got there, but Princeton Seminary shares Mercer Street with the Einsteins. And to this day, people in that neighborhood love to tell the story about the eight-year-old Mercer Street girl who would commonly knock on the Einsteins' front door to get help with her math homework. And when she couldn't figure out a problem, she would apologize to Dr. Einstein, and he would say, never apologize for having trouble with math, Adelaide. I can assure you, I have a great deal more trouble with math than you do. Right? E equals mc squared is a lot more trouble than 4 times 4 is 16. By the way, did you notice how I tried to maximize myself in your eyes by telling you that I studied next door to Dr. Einstein when I really didn't. There's terror behind the haughtiness. In his novel, The Power and the Glory, Graham Greene describes a minor character like this. Pride wavered in his voice like a plant with shallow roots. I love that image. Some smart people waver like plants with shallow roots. More powerful, accomplished, polished people than we will ever know are just a little bit uncertain on the inside. Do you know about this thing called the imposter syndrome? Psychologists have been using this term for about 40 years. It's especially prominent among successful women. So many successful women with academic achievement and earned degrees and professional success 
and high salaries feel like imposters inside. They feel like some mistake has been made. They didn't earn their success. They, didn't, they don't deserve their success. They got lucky. Long time ago, they managed to scam a college counselor at Northwestern, and she let this person into the university, or she fooled a managing director at William Blair and convinced this woman to give her her first job at the age of 22. And they fear that any moment they're going to be unveiled for the pretenders they are. I call it the Cinderella syndrome. Now, other psychologists use the Cinderella legend in other ways. But I like to think of Cinderella as someone who is anxious that who she is underneath it all is not what appearances tell the world. So, not this ravishing, bejeweled princess with an impossibly elegant designer gown and glass slippers and a horse-drawn carriage, but just a cinder girl covered in rags and chimney soot. And it's always five minutes till midnight. The great reveal is just around the corner. Paul Anthony Jones says that the antidote to the Cinderella syndrome is the Zenobia complex. Zenobia was the extremely capable queen of the flourishing but smallish empire of Palmyra in central Syria in the third century. Nobody expected anything from Zenobia. She was just somebody's wife. But then her husband the king died and the king's heir, her eldest son, leaving the flourishing but smallish kingdom of Palmyra to Queen Zenobia, who managed to turn it into this huge superpower sprawling across most of the ancient Near East from Egypt in the south to Turkey in the north. Zenobia was modest and unassuming, but also benevolent and intelligent, and eventually her name became a cipher for any powerful, courageous, unstoppable woman. Now it's disappeared from our English vocabulary, not from history, but from our English vocabulary. Maybe we should raise it from the dead. And a lot depends whether we see ourselves as Cinderella or Zenobia. More of us than we'll ever guess mask our insecurities with bluster and swagger and bombast. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, sneers Nathaniel. But Jesus is not offended. He sees Nathaniel coming towards him, and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. In other words, Nathaniel, I can tell you, always tell the truth. With you, what we see is what we get. No fraud, no pretense, no guile, just the facts, ma'am. Nathaniel, I love that about you. And when Nathaniel realizes that Jesus is determined to see not Nathaniel's faults and insecurities, but only what's good in him, what's virtuous but maybe hidden and secret, Nathaniel's bravado just instantly vanishes. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. From sneer to doxology in four short verses. And how Jesus redeems Nathaniel is how Jesus redeems the rest of us. 
He knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus expects more of us than we expect of ourselves. He's determined to see what's virtuous but hidden within us. And when we realize that he sees us not as Cinderella but as Zenobia, we can reach up to and live into his higher expectations for us. I hope a bunch of you are watching Henry Louis Gates' documentary about the black church on PBS. This is our story. This is our song. According to Dr. Gates, the black church was absolutely integral, absolutely crucial to the survival and the eventual flourishing of enslaved Americans, way more important than anything else in their experience. In those tiny praise huts, they insisted on seeing themselves as Jesus saw them, as God's own children, precious and beloved of the Lord forever. In those tiny praise huts, they scribed an alternative narrative to the story about themselves they heard in the world six days a week. On the plantation, they were told, you're beasts of burden. In the American Constitution, they were told, you're worth three-fifths of a white human being. In the cotton fields, they were treated like chattel. At the Charleston slave auction, they were bought and sold as property. In those tiny praise huts, they treated each other as royalty. In those raucous worship services, they sang, they prayed, they preached the implacable, everlasting truth that they were God's own children, beloved and precious to the deity until the last of all their days and beyond. According to Dr. Gates, this is what literally, literally kept them alive. One scholar in the documentary says that those African-American spirituals that we still love, even in a lily-white place like Kenilworth Union, those African-American spirituals were as important as Union guns in getting those people to January 1, 1863, when they could declaim free at last. We're saved. We are redeemed. We reach the full stature of our genuine God-given humanity when we see ourselves as Jesus sees us, as Israelites in whom there is no guile. As Milan Kundera puts it, all our faults are redeemed by love's magic eyes. Yes, love's magic eyes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.